0: I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, my name's Brent, and I'm one of the, the pastoral assistants here along with Daniel, and I get to do a lot of different things around the church, but probably my favorite thing that I get to do around the church is hang out with the youth ministry, right? We get to do things like power-up clubs, or, or the last few months, back in, in January, we actually did our first trip as a youth group outside of Tallahassee, and my wife Grace and, and Susan Colligan and I, we bravely packed a 15-passenger van and went down to Universal Studios for Rock the Universe. For those of you who who don't know, Rock the Universe is an event that happens at Universal Studios, where the parks are open during the day like normal theme parks. And then at night, the parks stay open and they have Christian concerts that are going while rides are are happening in the back. So I got to kind of fulfill a childhood dream of mine and I got to watch the band Skillet play while there was like the rock and roller coaster, like red and green and blue flashing in the back, kind of a dream come true. Uh, but what was, really, what was really fun for me to be a chaperone and, and, to, and to see in our students was all of the waiting that we got to do. Right? If you've been to a theme park, you know that there's an awful lot of waiting that happens as you're waiting to ride rides. And some of our students, it, it was fun to watch how they processed and how they handled the waiting. We, we played a lot of games while we were waiting in line, silly games. If, if you ask some of our, our teenagers, they might cringe in remembering a game called Ring Ting Tang Toom, Maybe they, maybe they enjoyed it. I don't, I don't know if they did. You should ask them. But we spent a lot of time waiting and, and finding ways to kind of make the slow shuffling and the incremental progress that we were making towards the front of the line a little bit more bearable, right? And there's that hope. And you're like getting ready to go into the next room, like maybe the ride's in here. And you just see like another line that's wrapping all the way around the room. Well, we got to do a lot of that, especially on the Men in Black ride. That ride just had like the longest wait time ever. And we, we saddled up. We said, all right, we're going to do it. We did all of the waiting that happens outside. We made it into the building. And then we had the dreaded news, the news no one ever wants to hear while you're waiting in line for a theme park ride. And that was that the ride was indefinitely closed due to unexpected repairs. And this unexpected news threatened to derail all of our patient waiting. Isn't waiting just like the worst Isn't waiting some of the hardest and biggest battlegrounds in our life to learn to trust God? And even in our best and our most faithful and well-intentioned waiting, sometimes bad news comes along and derails everything that we've been trying to grow towards and work towards. But what if our waiting was meant for something better? What if our waiting was actually for our good and even the hard things that we encounter along the way while we're waiting? And the times that our waiting was challenged most heavily were some of the times that God is up to the most profound work in our lives. In a moment, we're going to open up to Psalm 125. And this psalm invites us to have a sturdy hope in God through our waiting and through our suffering. The reality is because God is faithfully present with his people, because God powerfully defends his people, we can have a sturdy hope in our waiting, and in our trials. Or, or you can think about it more simply, God's powerful presence gives us a sturdy hope. And we're going to talk about this by, by broadly just thinking about two things that are addressed in the psalm, God's power and God's presence. Those are, those are two buckets or two, two hooks that you can hang the psalm on, God's presence and God's power. For those of you who are keenly listening, you'll have caught that Psalm 125 is not in the book of Matthew. This week, we're just taking a short break from Matthew that we've been, we've been studying through systematically for the last little while, and we'll jump back in next week. With all that said, let's hear from God. This is God's word from the 125th Psalm. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's take a moment and pray that God helps us to understand what we've just read. Our Father, we, we thank you for all that we have in you. God, we thank you that we get to come and worship and to hear from you, that, that you choose to shape us by worship and word. So Spirit of God, you're, you're the author and preserver of Scripture. You're the one who affects lasting change in our hearts. We ask now that you would help us not to be observers of a, of a distant text and, and removed from the truth that you have for us here, We ask that you would unstop our ears and that you would open our hearts. God, we we need clearer sight. We need clearer vision to see you. So we ask today, Spirit of God, that you would help us to see you and to see the love and the provision that we have just a little bit more clearly. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, the only name given under heaven among men by which we're to be saved. Amen. We'll start by considering what this psalm tells us about God's presence. Because God is present with his people, we have a sturdy hope in our waiting and our trials. I love that Psalm 125 points a really earthy picture of what God's presence is like. Look back at the passage at verse 2. It says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. God's presence with his people is compared to the very real mountains that surround Jerusalem. I've never been to Jerusalem, but I have a friend who's there right now. So while I was reading this psalm. I asked him to send me a picture like, what's it like in Jerusalem? And it was really neat. When you're in a certain spot in Jerusalem, you're high enough that you can see over the walls. You can take a picture in every direction and you are literally surrounded by mountains. Like, it's like a big rocky hug that the mountains give to Mount Zion, which is situated right in the middle of this mountain range. And it's interesting because the the Israelites would have been really, really familiar with these mountains as they're singing the songs of ascent. And while they're singing about the mountains that surround Jerusalem, they would have had in mind these mountains as they maybe walked over them while they were on their way to Jerusalem for some of the yearly feasts. Or maybe they would have sang Psalm 125 on their way back from exile. They were longing for home. They were longing for the familiar mountains of Jerusalem. Maybe some of y'all are from the north and or somewhere that has like actual mountains. That's not the Tallahassee Hills. and, And you kind of feel that a little bit. You long for the mountains. And God, in his kindness, gives the Israelites a very earthy picture, a very tangible picture of what his presence with them is like. The Israelites would have known these mountains really, really well. And the mountains weren't just something that they knew well, but they understood what it meant to have God compared to those mountains. See, the mountains serve as a symbol of protection. The mountains help keep Jerusalem safe from invading armies, mostly because of the sheer difficulty of walking a big group of people up and over some mountains and all the things that you would need to take with you to wage war. I live at the hill at the top of 8th, right here in front of the church, and I get winded just kind of like walking up the hill. So the mountains provide protection in that they dissuade attacking armies from trying to go all the way up and over these mountains. But I think it's interesting that this psalm and the psalmist points specifically to the mountains that surround Jerusalem instead of all the other kinds of protection. I mean, there was the valleys in between the mountains, and even more uh, specifically, there were walls that surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem had these impressive walls that surrounded it that the people had built with their hands. They laid all of the rocks. They helped seal them all together, and, and the walls were nearer to the city than the mountains. So why would the psalmist point to the distant mountains that surround Jerusalem to remind them of God's presence instead of the, the walls that were immediately around them? My guess is that the psalmist chooses the mountains because the mountains were made by God and they're permanent. The psalmist is drawing our attention to the work of God's hand in his creation rather than the work of our hands and our creations. And this is with good reason too the Israelites would have known that the walls that they built weren't very reliable because Babylon broke through and carried them off into exile. Comparing God's presence to the mountains is trying to show the Israelites that God's presence is permanent. It can't be torn down like a wall and it's dependable, unlike the walls that they knew. The things that we build for ourselves and the walls that we put up cannot protect us like God, who is our mountain. And the result of acknowledging and understanding God's presence, which is permanent and reliable, is found in verse 1. Look back at the passage. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. What a hope and what a promise. When you trust in Yahweh and His presence to defend you, you become like a mountain that can never be moved. I've never been called a mountain. I haven't met anyone that I think I would call a mountain. I think there's like one guy who's a strong man that's like seven feet tall and can throw like 100-pound buckets over his head really high in the air. I think he's called the mountain. But you can become a mountain when you depend on and trust in God. When you trust in Yahweh, you become unshakable. You abide forever. You remain forever. So why is it that that often doesn't feel like it's the case? Why is it that more often than not, we feel less like a sturdy mountain and a lot more like a house of cards in an earthquake? One of my friends is a a missionary in a closed Central Asian country, and she shared with us recently that she experienced her first earthquake. She said it was super unsettling. She was sitting in bed, and then her bed started to shake, and, and then the walls of her room started to shake, and the door was rattling, and She went and looked outside because she didn't know what was happening, and and she saw that the ground was shaking. And that's super unsettling because the ground is like the one thing that should never be moving, right? The ground is the one thing that's supposed to stay still. I think the, the reality is that oftentimes we feel like we're in a spiritual earthquake because we look to the walls that surround Jerusalem. We look to the walls and the things that we've built around us for protection instead of looking to God and his provision. We've stopped looking at God and We've taken our heavenly vision and directed it towards earthly things. We look at things like our money and in our relationships or or the feelings that we muster up in worship or or we look at our, our reputation as the kinds of things that we find hope and comfort in. You know, that's one of the sneaky things about idolatry is that it's not just about elevating other things up to God's level by worship, but also by elevating other things up to God's status by depending on them by putting our hope and our trust in them. I think that's why the psalmist is trying to direct our vision towards the mountains, because there's a danger when we look away from the mountains. Look back at verse 3. We're we're being warned that the righteous might stretch out their hands to do wrong. And I think one of the kinds of sins that the psalmist is pointing out here is idolatry. We're being warned that when we stop looking at the mountains and we start looking at the walls— when we stop depending on God alone for our comfort and we start trying to put our comfort and our hope into other things, we stretch out our hands to do wrong. Idolatry sneaky. And I think there are some good, helpful questions that we can ask ourselves to find our idols. When things go wrong, where do we turn? When life is hard, what do we look for? Sometimes it can be tangible things, right? Sometimes it can be things like food or our money but other times our idols are a little bit more subtle. We can try and hide behind reputations, right? We've built up an image of ourselves, and that when the going gets tough, if I can just kind of hide in that, then I'll be okay. Or or maybe uh, we have an idol of some kind of avoidant busyness. Things are getting really hard, so I'm just going to slip into the busyness of things and I'm going to be more productive and I'm going to be getting things done, right? So I don't have to deal with how hard things are makes the waiting feel a little bit easier. But the reality is the walls and the things that we build for ourselves and that we try and hide in will always fall. Earthly things are never going to be permanent. And sometimes God in his kindness lets our walls come crashing down. Sometimes God in his kindness lets our idols fail us because he wants to show us where we've been putting our comfort. And he wants to invite us to pick our eyes up, to exercise our necks a little bit, and instead of look at the earth, to look towards him, to lift our eyes from the walls that surround Jerusalem to the mountains that surround, and to depend on him alone for our comfort. And the psalm gives us uh, the remedy to our tendency to look towards the walls and forget God's presence. The psalmist points to visible symbols of God's presence with them. And we have that too. If you've ever had the the privilege of listening to one of our elders, Kyle Kozlowski, speak, you'll probably have heard him say that there are three things that are eternal. God, his word, and his people. And these are like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. These are like the mountains that surround us now. Think about God's presence. God has given us visible signs of his presence with us. You thought about the Lord's Supper. That's what it is. It's, It's a visible symbol of God's invisible promise to be with us. We meet with God at the table. It's an invitation that he opens up to us, and he opens it to us, and he's the one who calls us to it, not because he forgets, but because we're the ones who need to be reminded. We're the ones who often are looking around in other places, and God says, come to me at the table. I'm here. It's a visible symbol of God's invisible presence. We also have God's word. You know, every time that we open up the Bible, that really is God speaking to us. It really is God's Word to us. That doesn't always mean it's going to be spectacular. It doesn't always mean you're going to feel like you've been like Paul and lifted up into heaven and given a vision of revelation and glory. But God is faithfully here in His Word. God promises that that's where He'll be and that's where we can meet with Him. Think about God's people. Think about our, our, our church, which is the body of Christ in whom we live and move and have our being. You know, it's a joy that we get to be with one another, to speak life to one another, to suffer with one another, to rejoice and wait with one another. That's why we we live life together as God's people. And you know, God's people last into eternity because God preserves his people. That's the remedy towards looking at earthly walls and how we look towards the spiritual mountains. We look at and we remember the things that God has promised us will always last. His presence with us, His Word, and His people. And that's the hope. That's the great hope that we have in our waiting is that God is always present with us. But it takes faith to believe that God is actually in all of those places. It takes faith to believe that God meets with us at the table takes faith to believe that God speaks to us in his word, takes faith to believe that God dwells in and among us by his spirit. And you know what's great? When our faith is weak, God invites us to have more faith and to ask him for more. We can confidently pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what it means that God is present with us. It's because God is present with his people that we can have a steadfast hope in our waiting in our trials. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, that, that all sounds great in theory, right? That, that all sounds really nice that the mountains defend against wars, but, but what about all the times that I got attacked? What about all the times the armies walked over the mountains and came and attacked me? Maybe you're thinking, I feel attacked right now, and those distant mountains don't really feel like they're doing a whole lot to help me. But fortunately, this psalm doesn't just end at describing God's presence, but it also describes God's power, it's because God acts powerfully on behalf of his people that we have steadfast hope in our waiting and are waiting in our trials. I love that the scriptures were written by real people. They were given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They are inspired, inerrant, infallible, but they were written by real people who experienced everyday life. And the psalmist isn't an idealist, right? He's not someone who's lived a really cushy life where the mountains have just repelled every single attack. No, look back at verse 3. The beginning of verse 3 says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And this verse describes a really unnatural situation that the Israelites would have been experiencing. The land allotted to the righteous is the promised land. It's, where God, it's the land, the, the literal piece of dirt that God said, I'm going to give this to you and this is where you're going to live. And while they were there, God had promised to give them a king, a Davidic king. And he said that you will always have a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. But the Old Testament tells us that's not what the Israelites experienced. They sinned and wandered off into idolatry and they were carried away by Babylon. And there was a scepter of wickedness that dwelt over the land allotted to the righteous. Because even when they came back from exile, they didn't have a king. And as unexpected as this was for God's people, it wasn't a surprise to God. The reality of Psalm 125 is that even the scepter of wickedness that's over the land is under God's authority. There's not a single molecule that moves outside of God's plan. There's not a single leaf that falls off of a tree, there's not a single wave or gust of air that is outside of God's purview. And and I don't know The evil that you experience. I don't know the very real suffering that you experience, but I do know that God is sovereign even over the scepter of wickedness that attacks us, and he can do something about it because that's what the psalmist invites God to do. That's what he asks God in prayer. Look at verses 4 and 5. The psalmist calls on God to do good to those who are good and to those who turn aside with their crooked ways to lead them away with evildoers. I mean, the psalmist clearly believes that God can do something. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking God to act. And specifically, the thing that he wants God to do is to do good to those who are upright in their hearts. And the idea of being upright in heart might have something to do with this kind of like moral perfection, but like we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, it probably is referring more to a kind of wholeness or integrity that our heart walks the straight path within us and matches our outward actions. It's a, it's a consonance, it's, it's a parody, it's a match between our inward parts and our outward actions, our inward desires, thoughts, and feelings, and our outward actions. A good person, or a person who's upright and hard, is someone whose insides match their outside. And this is contrasted with those in verse 5 who turn aside to their own crooked ways. And suddenly, it seems like this prayer is a little out of place because aren't we all like that? I mean, who among us has a perfect integrity? Who among us can perfectly say that my hearts and my thoughts and and my desires are all in line with God's will and my actions perfectly follow from that? We can pray God do good to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart, but that really wouldn't leave anybody for God to do good to. And the Israelites would have known that. They, They would have recognized that they were the ones who turned to their own side and were carried away with evildoers. Because they were carried away by Babylon. So, why would God leave this prayer for us in the Bible? I think it's the point to his great power. See, Psalm 32 addresses the upright in heart. Psalm 32, it describes those who are upright in heart. And in the beginning of the psalm, this is how the upright in heart are described. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in, those, or in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The upright in heart aren't perfect people, but people who are forgiven. They don't have a perfect merit of their own or a perfect integrity of their own, but they're people who are forgiven. John Piper, in, in commenting on what it means to be upright in heart, says that the upright in heart recognize their need for mercy and also trust. That God will be merciful. And we can confidently pray this same prayer because we can look to the cross. We can look to where Jesus, the one who was perfectly upright in heart, who had a perfect righteousness, died in our place for our sins. And that when we're united to him by faith, we exchange our record of sinfulness for Jesus's record of perfect righteousness. We're not good or upright in heart by our own merit we're good and upright in heart because of what Christ has done. And you know, more than just forgive us and and give us a record of righteousness, we also get a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that when we have faith in Christ and when we're united to Him, we're made into new creations. We're entirely new, and we have a nature that actually desires to walk in uprightness of heart. At the cross, Jesus dies in our place to give us his record of righteousness so that we can be good and count it as good. And he gives us a new nature and instructs us by his spirit so that we can be those who walk upright in heart. The cross also shows us God's power in defeating death. You know what the greatest scepter of wickedness that ever dwelt over the land allotted to the righteous was? It wasn't Babylon, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't any of the empires in between, it was death. The wages of sin is death. And God's people weren't meant to live under death. Death was the curse of sin. And it ruled over us. And that's the, 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 right, the right recompense, the right thing that we deserve for our sin is death. But the cross shows us that God defeats the scepter of wickedness forever. I love that we were just singing Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave, because that's what God did for us. That's what the resurrection shows us, is that God conquers the grave, that God conquers the greatest enemy of his people, that God conquers sin and death itself. The resurrection is what gives us hope that the scepter of wickedness has been broken forever. And even though it might pass through the land, even though it might attack us, we have hope that it's already been defeated forever. I think there's a great hope nestled into verse 3. It says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land. It can pass through, it can attack us, but it will not rest. And we know that when we die, the scepter of wickedness will not have the last word over us, but the cross will. Because by faith in Christ, we have a sturdy and steady hope that will drag us through the dirt and drag us through the grave and into God's presence forever. The resurrection shows us that God hasn't abandoned us. God has not forgotten us. God has not let the mountains melt away and let us be attacked forever. But God shows us that he knows our greatest enemy and he knows our weakness and he goes and he defeats our enemy on our behalf. And all that we have to do is have faith that that really is what he's done and to pursue him by his spirit. You know, Psalm 125 is a psalm of great confidence. It believes in a deliverance that has not yet been fully realized. And that's the kind of faithful living that we're called to as we live in a time of already, but not yet. We have already been forgiven and the scepter of wickedness has already been broken, but we have not yet been fully delivered. So the psalm is an invitation to live in steady hope, knowing that God's power is over the scepter of the wicked. He's defeated it forever and he won't let it rest over the land allotted to the righteous. So how do we hold on to our gospel hope while we dwell under the scepter of wickedness, while it's passing through and while it attacks us? Well, first we have to remember that God has the final word. We have to remember that God has already defeated the scepter of wickedness in the resurrection. The tomb being empty is evidence that God will not let evil have the last word. So as we experience suffering now, we remember that God has already won And that God now purposes the suffering that we experience because he is so powerful over it to shape us into the image of Jesus. You know what Hebrews 5 tells us about Jesus? It's that during his lifetime, he offered up many prayers with tears to him who was able to save him and deliver him from death. It says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And God is so powerful that even now the things that we suffer, even now all of our waiting, even now all of the extra bad news that we get along the way, is God's kindness into shaping us into the image of Jesus. And Jesus experienced all of these things to be our forerunner, to go ahead of us, to show us that there's a path to glory through suffering, to show us that on the other side of death there is resurrection. And we can continue to follow the example of Jesus as we pray. We can call on God and ask him to be who he says he is and to do what he says he'll do. Look at verses 4 and 5. Those are petitions in prayer. The psalmist is asking God to do something and to act on his behalf. There's a commentator who notes that uh, on verses four and five that the passage suggests that as we suffer, we should earnestly beseech God by prayer for what God has bidden us to hope for by his word. Or in other words, we ought to call on God to be true to his word and faithful to his word. And this isn't presuming on God or demanding of God. When we pray God's word and his promises back to him, we're not inventing new ways that God should act. We're not inventing new character traits of God, but when we pray God's word to him, we're asking him to be faithful to his promises. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when I was a PE coach. I'm not a parent, but I learned through coaching that kids are really good at remembering the things that you promise them. And there was a day that I had to change my lesson plans, and we could not play sharks and minnows the most beloved and prized game of the third grade class. And I told them, look, I promise, we're going to play sharks and minnows next week, but we can't today. And they were like, all right, that's okay. You've promised. Next week rolls around, and I picked them up bright and early Monday morning because for some reason they had P.E. in the morning, and they were stinky all day. And as we were walking out, there were lots of little whispers, Mr. Shepherd, remember sharks and minnows? Remember you promised Mr. Shepherd, you promised. And I'm glad that they reminded me because my lesson plans changed again over the weekend and we got to play Sharks and Minnows that Monday. See, my third graders weren't presuming on me. They weren't asking anything unreasonable when they asked me to play Sharks and Minnows. They were just asking me to be true to my word. But unlike me, God doesn't forget what he's promised. God doesn't need to be reminded of what he's promised to do. See, prayer isn't something that jogs God's memory. When we pray, it's not like God says, you know what, I guess I did say something about blessing them or or something about taking care of them or something about protecting them. But rather, prayer is God's way of inviting us to learn more about who He is. He invites us to pray, not because we're twisting His arm or or saying something magical that's going to make God act some way. But when we pray God's word back to Him, He's inviting us to see that He's true to His word. Prayer is the way that we get to participate in God's will for our lives. We ought to be careful, though, before we begin to make assumptions about how that works. Right? We, we don't want to begin to make the assumption that every time we pray one of God's promises, we'll get exactly what we want. That every time we, we pray for something from, from Scripture, that we're not proof texting God saying, here you said it because the reality is that oftentimes God will say no even to our good prayers because he knows best. You know, when I was coaching, about a third of the way through the year, I learned that there was an obstacle course race that the school was gonna have later in the year. And I thought, well, I need to change all of my lesson plans now. There's gonna be no more sharks and minnows for a little while because I needed to prepare them. There's a lot of running and climbing and push-ups and jumping jacks and sit-ups that were all ahead. And it was my job to prepare them for that. So when I didn't play sharks and minnows with my students, it was because I was trying to prepare them for what was ahead. And the reality is sometimes God says no even to our good desires and our good asks because he knows what's ahead. And you know, what was hard is every time that I said yes to playing a game like sharks and minnows during the time of preparation, I was actually doing a disservice to my students. I wasn't preparing them well. And God, because He loves us, because He knows that there are many more weeks where He can make good on His promise, because He knows there's an eternity where we will get all of the riches of heaven and see them and feel them and experience them, will sometimes say no even to our good asks. And it's not because God's mean, it's not because God's vindictive, it's not because God is punishing us for sin, but it's because God is our Father who loves us and knows best. And God is more committed to our well-being and more committed to our good and more committed to our sanctification than we could ever imagine. And that's what we're invited to trust. That's what this psalm asks us to be confident in. That even when things are hard and we pray good things, that God has the final word because he loves us, because he cares for us. And he's shown that at the cross. That's what the resurrection shows is that God acts powerfully for his people. You know, one of the the best parts about the Rock the Universe ride is that eventually we did make it to the Men in Black ride. We, we, We soldiered it out. We played a lot more silly games, and the games got sillier and sillier as we got a little bit more delirious while we were waiting. But eventually we made it to the Men in Black ride. And what was cool is not only did we get to enjoy riding the ride because it's the best ride there, But we also now had all of these cool new memories that we'd made along the way. All new games that we got to play and that we get to laugh about now. We got more than we'd hoped for. And isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God to do far greater than we could ever ask or think according to the power that's at work within us according to Jesus Christ? And the psalmist lands that not only does the scepter of wickedness leave, but Peace is upon Israel. You know, we have a peace too. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that our peace has a name and his name is Jesus. We have peace in Christ. We have his presence by his indwelling spirit. And we're reminded that he acts powerfully for us because not only is he powerful enough to live a perfect life and die, but he defeats death and resurrects. And he promises to bring us home. He promises that we'll be with him both now and forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is present with you? Do you believe that God acts powerfully for you? He directs us to look at the mountains, He directs us to look at the cross. Let's pray together.